Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I'm talking with the acclaimed filmmaker Spike Lee about his movie, The Sweet Blood of Jesus. The protagonist of the film is a young man named Dr. Hess Green. He lives part-time on one of his estates in Martha's Vineyard, where he collects African art and artifacts. He throws cocktail parties. As they say in in San Francisco, he is hella money. (laughs) Hella. H-E-L-L-A, hella. You know how we do it in the yay. Sucker free. So anyway, your man has hella money. (laughs) And... um, Spike, I know that he has hella money because game recognized game in the Bay. Oh, there you go. There you go. This host right he's dropping science, people. He's dropping science. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to filmmaker Spike Lee. Last year, he reimagined Bill Gunn's blaxploitation-era movie Ganja and Hess as The Sweet Blood of Jesus. The original is about a doctor's assistant who develops an insatiable desire for blood. Well, the film was very trippy. It was kind of crazy. It's bananas. And uh, I just love this whole thing of of people being addicted to blood, but blood was really a metaphor for addictions we all have as a human being. Spike and I will talk about gentrification, Larry Bird, and his own very serious addiction to Air Jordans. Later, I'll talk to Katja Blickfeld and Ben Sinclair. Katja is an Emmy-winning casting director. Ben is an actor. In 2012, the couple created the web series High Maintenance. It was picked up by HBO. It makes its debut on the network this week. The show follows a New York City pot dealer, with each episode focusing on a different client, a device that came out of Blickfeld and Sinclair not having a budget. Because we couldn't pay our actors or crew, we thought maybe we'd have better luck getting a great variety of great actors if we can just keep the time commitment low. And it ended up being a constraint that we liked working with. Ben Sinclair plays the weed delivery guy, known only as The Guy. He says making the show has forced him to be open with his family about his own pot use. Um, and it has really opened a lot of communication doorways because there's not this uh, underlying thing of I'm pretending to be something that I'm actually not. Like, I'm a stoner. It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I'll tell you about the best satire of the last decade, MTV2's Wonder Shows. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Spike Lee's 1985 debut, She's Gotta Have It, was crowdfunded. $175,000 raised from friends and acquaintances and acquaintances of acquaintances paid for 16 days of shooting on a film that made over $7 million at the box office. In the 30 years since, Lee's made all types of films. Slices of Life, Grand Historical Biography, Big Budget Studio Genre Pictures, Documentaries, Concert Movies, Comedy, and Music. Some iconic commercials, even. I sat down with Spike Lee to discuss his career and the film that was new at the time, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which he crowdsourced in a more updated way, using Kickstarter. Lee's newest film, Michael Jackson's Journey from Motown to Off the Wall, is available now on Showtime. I spoke with him last year. Spike Lee, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. What's up, baby? Glad to be here on NPR's Bullseye. 
<laughs> so I'm giving you my radio voice. You sound good. You sound good. Thank Can you. we we we'll get you some tea with honey and we'll get a little even richer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a movie that is, um, you know, it's sort of like a vampire movie. But it's not quite a vampire movie. Really, it's about addiction and addiction, not just in the literal physical sense, although it is a literal physical addiction to blood in the movie. Um, and I wonder if you feel like there are things in your life to which you're addicted. Oh, I'm addicted to sports, cinema, addicted to Air Jordans. I think that's enough addictions. <laughs> How does a sports addiction manifest itself? Have you seen the re- the Knicks record this year? <laughs> <laughs> There's a scene in The Sweet Blood of Jesus where the protagonist is is in his he lives sort of like a Gatsby-ish lifestyle in Martha's Vineyard. Well and that's his that's his summer home, Martha's Vineyard. He he has a condo on Central Park West in the city. Basically overall, financially speaking, he's not sweating it. Oh, he has he has <laughs> crazy and, he has crazy money. Oh oh you know what? As they say in, in San Francisco, he has hella money. <laughs> <laughs> hella H-E-L-L-A Hella You know how we do it in the yay Sucker free So anyway um, Your man has hella money <laughs> Spike I know that he has hella money Because game recognized game in the bay Oh there you go There you go This host right He's dropping science people He's dropping science <laughs> <laughs> So he's 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 having this party, like this cocktail party, and he's having this conversation with these two uh, sort of society matron types, right? White ladies, maybe fifty-ish, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, they're arguing about the the role of the things that we're addicted to in our right. lives, and whether an addiction to money among what they call the upper middle class, which is what the rich call the rich. Um, is uh, frees them from culpability or makes them more culpable in the problems of society. I just found that very affecting. Um, and I wonder how you feel about the idea of addiction to money. Do you think it's real? Oh, yeah. Do you think it makes us more or less culpable? Well, I don't know about that, but... People kill for money. I know there's a what what is a better example of an addiction if you kill for it? Murder for it. And people's lives and dreams. And generations. I mean, money is definitely I mean, I don't want to go to the Bible, but if I have to, I will. It's the root of all evil. And I'll put money ahead of alcohol. Sex, nicotine, drugs. Oh I, oh, I always say money is the biggest addiction. Sometimes I wonder if I'm addicted to money. Do you ever wonder that? You know, I've never really been. Here's, here's the, the honest truth. I did not become a filmmaker to, 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 to have money. I mean, that was never really the goal. The goal was to be a filmmaker to tell stories. And the money and all the other stuff, you know, is uh, is a byproduct of it. But my goal was 
I want to be rich and famous, so I'm going to be a filmmaker. That was that was not it. that was not it for me. I want to play a scene from Do the Right Thing, and it's maybe my favorite scene from one of my favorite movies. Thank and you. And it's one of the one of the most, of course, and one of the most famous scenes from the movie. So, um, one of the central characters of the movie, uh, whose name is Bugging Out, is kind of hanging out outside the stoop uh, where he lives in Brooklyn. And he gets bumped by this white guy wearing a Larry Bird jersey and pushing a bicycle. The great John Savage. Yeah, an amazing, amazing performance in that scene. Um, drinking a, a carton of orange juice. Tropica- Tropica- and- whoa, 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 whoa. Tropicana orange juice, sir. <laughs> and he's wearing to be specific. Uh, uh, emerald green Boston Celtic number 33 Larry Bird jersey when Mr. Bird was in his was, was I don't forget I can't think of the word but go ahead I'm gonna like, stop interrupting you well Larry Bird at the time was not only at the apex of his playing that's career that's the word my man apex <laughs> thank you <laughs> But he was also, I think, at, at his apex as a symbol mm-hmm. of um, white people in basketball, which was becoming, uh, or had substantially by then become, uh, an African American dominated sport. And so he was a very, very powerful symbolic choice. Not least of which because he played for the Celtics, and this is a movie set in New York. But, but, but if I could, may interject right here. Because sure. I would really like to clear the record. Larry Bird never took on that stuff. It was put upon him. He just wanted to play ball. He was just the recipient of it, the, of the media. Absolutely, and an undeniably great player. And I hope Mr. Bird is saying that because, uh, I mean, we said some things about him and she's got to have it. <laughs> but I never ever said that he, could, he couldn't play one of the greatest ball players ever. I have mad respect, crazy respect for Mr. Bird. Just didn't like the Celtics. <laughs> any team from Boston, you go up in New York, if you don't like any team from Boston, I'm still recovering from the Super Bowl. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to filmmaker Spike Lee. One of the things that is special about sports, I think, is that it both is everything, like really matters and is absolutely real, and also doesn't matter at all and is completely irrelevant at the same time, which is like a very rare quality. Like on the one hand, what does it matter who won the basketball game? It's just a basketball game. It's not geopolitics. On the other hand, you know, the basketball game or the Super Bowl or the World Series or whatever is one of the few things in our culture that we, that many to most of us have decided to imbue with this significance. Is that a question or a statement? Well, it's a, it's a leading statement, <laughs> I believe is what we call it in the interviewer's handbook. I'm just waiting for you to bring it home, baby. <laughs> but, you know, like when you, th- when you talk about the things that you said about Larry Bird, right? right? Sort of you were saying them about Larry Bird, but mostly you were saying them about the idea of Larry Bird, not just his cultural symbolism of being the great white hope, but also... Just being a, the guy who represents the other city, 
You know what I mean? Well, it was both the, of them. The hated it, it, rival. It was uh, the, the white symbol who's going to save the game. And also, here's another thing. I know you want to. I know we start out by talking about that scene, but we got a little bit sidetracked. I like to say this though: the thing that got me about how they portrayed Larry Bird, they acted like he was the only one that worked. Like we just come out of the womb, black athletes just come out of the womb dunking and dribbling, but Larry Bird had that work ethic. I remember, you know, I remember watching those games on CBS Sports, especially the finals. I'm telling you, back in the day. Once the Boston against the Lakers, that thing was, if you leave L.A. out of it, that thing was down racial lines. When the Lakers and the Celtics met in the finals. That was, that was the way it was. I just remember watching CBS Sports. Larry Bird arrived at the Boston Garden 12 hours before tip-off and took 10,000 free throws. And Magic didn't work. Kareem didn't work. James Worthy didn't work. Anybody that's made it to the league, those guys have worked to it. They have natural ability, but they put in work. Michael Jordan worked. He was not the same. When he, when he, let's use that word apex again. When Michael cheated his apex and became the, world, became the world's greatest ball player, that was not the same Michael Jordan that came out of the University of North Carolina under the late great Dean Smith who passed a couple of days ago. Michael Jordan Worked his butt off. Michael couldn't shoot really well when he came out. And he wanted to be the, the most complete ball player he could be. So every summer, he would look at the weakest aspect of his game and work on it. For two consecutive years, the Chicago Bulls could not get past Detroit Pistons bad boys because they were beating the heck out of him. And he said, I'm not doing it anymore. And he got a trainer. And after that, and he bulked them and got strong, Detroit was never able to beat him again. But let's get back to the scene and do the right thing. <laughs> For those who've forgotten, uh, in the scene, uh, Buggin' Out is one of the main characters from around the neighborhood in the movie. The agitator. Um, he's hanging out on the sidewalk, and this white guy in a Larry Bird jersey uh, carrying a bicycle bumps him. And then he looks down and notices that uh, his Jordans are scuffed. Wait, wait. His pristine Air Jordans have been scuffed. Pristine, fresh out the box. Okay, Julia, my producer in the clip intro that she gave, said gleaming white. So I will go with that. <laughs> that works, too. You almost knocked me down, man. What is excuse me? Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Not only did you knock me down, you stepped on my brand new white Air Jordans that I just bought. And that's all you can say is excuse me. Or yeah, I'm man. serious. I'm up pick two times. Two times. Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block in my neighborhood on my side of the street? Yo, what you want to live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Well, I understand it. This is a free country. Man can live wherever he wants. Free country? Man, I should get for saying that stupid alone. Yo, man, your Jordans are f***ed up. Damn, man. You might as well throw them out. Them f***ed blow. Man, they looked at the good before he messed up. He did purpose, man. He was even talking about your mom. Yo, man, how much you pay for them? A hundred bucks. American dollars. A hundred and eight with tax. I give him a hundred headaches. Look, you lucky the black man has a loving heart. Next time you see me coming, then you cross the street quick. I'm out of here. Yo, man, bring his feet. Come on, George. Take his dog. I should make you buy me another pair. Black Panther, who is that? Take his bike. Man, you're lucky I'm a righteous black man. Otherwise, you'd be in serious trouble, man. Serious. Stay watching me back to Massachusetts. 
I was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> One of the things, you know, we really had uh, the crystal ball on Do the Right Thing. We forecast the uprise in L.A., one of the characters, one of the cornermen talks about global warning. And we also hit it on the nail about gentrification. So we could blame gentrification on John Savage's character for bedside do or die. I mean, my neighborhood growing up in Brooklyn Fork Green is gentrified. So is Bed-Stuy. So is Harlem. So was growing up, we used to call Washington, D.C. Chocolate City. Now it's Vanilla Swirl. So the thing about gentrification, you know, people really discuss... Where had the people gone? They used to live there. Where had they gone? Where they were replaced with? And when you talk about Brooklyn, you know, people keep moving further, further away from Manhattan, and you go in that direction, you go into the Atlantic Ocean. So after Coney Island, <laughs> you're in the water. The pain that comes from gentrification is like so honored in that scene and in the movie. Like, it is so real. It's not dismissed, you know? Just because Buggin' Out is the kind of guy that talks a lot of mess and, you know, likes to stir the pot doesn't mean that that pain that he and his friends there are feeling isn't real and it's treated like it's real. And at the same time, the easiest answer isn't presented as the answer. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, that this dude could just be an outsider and we say, well, it's about insiders versus outsiders, black versus white, simple as that, lickety-split. But it's actually more complicated than that. And that is part of what makes it, I don't know, for me, that's part of what makes it so painful. Yeah, but it's a funny scene at the same time, too. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a mixture of both, which I like to do a lot. I mean, Do the Right Thing is a very, very serious film. Even today, 25 years later, but it's also very funny. And uh, a lot of Do the Right Thing came back to the forefront. Number one, because of the 25th anniversary, which was past June 30th, but also the strangulation, and in my opinion, the strangulation murder of Eric Garner in Staten Island. When I saw that footage that came from Mr. Orta's phone, I immediately thought of Raider Raheem. But when I wrote the script, the strangulation of Raider Raheem was based upon the strangulation of the real-life person, Michael Stewart. After a break, I'll finish my conversation with Spike Lee. We'll talk about how he's seen gentrification transform his old neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. The suggestions in NPR One are hand-curated to help you find the best from public radio and beyond. News, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One is ready to make a trip, waiting in line, or waiting for a friend better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Hi. Are you a fan of Star Trek The Next Generation? Well, that's weird because it's a corny show. But my friends Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica do a lovely podcast about it. It's called The Greatest Generation, and it's on MaximumFun.org. I thought that this podcast was a bad idea, but I was wrong. Please listen to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org. 
there was a, a, a song, and, and there's a line in it where he sings. Now I'm a man that's for all seasons, and where the city offers me ain't naturally. Ain't naturally. He sings that, and I go, oh, no, that, that's bad English. So I say, hang on, Mike, and I come out, and I said, so it's like, isn't naturally, naturally, or isn't natural. I told him you pronounce the word so precisely, it takes away from the feeling of the song, and... And we got into a little thing with that. There's a lot of give and take, and sometimes you don't want to give. Or sometimes you give, but you feel like, I should have left it the way it was. Something said in my brain, shut the up. Something said in my brain, shut the up. Stop being the grammar police. This guy's a genius. Just get out of his way. I was right, and I won. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. That was a scene from Spike Lee's film, Michael Jackson's journey from Motown to off the wall. I spoke to Spike Lee last year. When Do the Right Thing came out, I was, was that 1989? So I was like eight years old and I didn't see it in the theater. Mm-hmm. But I did see it on VHS maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe three or four years later when I was in middle school. Um, oh, middle school. You must have some very progressive parents. I do. <laughs> and... Um, the gentrification stuff became very real to me. Where'd you grow up, if my, if my ass? I grew up in San Francisco, in the Mission District of cool. San Francisco. And mm-hmm. that gentrification stuff became very, very real to me maybe two or three years later by the time I was at the beginning of high school. Oh, San Francisco is crazy now. I mean, people, gentrification is happening in Oakland. Where, where are people going to move to? Well, my mom's plan is Guadalajara if she gets it. <laughs> That's her backup. And, you know, like I know a lot of people who have moved into the neighborhood that I grew up in, and a lot of them are good people. And it's very difficult to explain what the pain is of losing your home. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And I imagine that's something that that you feel as well. I mean, I don't, if I'm not mistaken, you haven't looked, lived in Brooklyn in a while. But My office is still there. It's still, yeah, I mean, it's like it, where your home is your home. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. And I just want to make it clear to everybody that's listening, this is the United States of America, and everybody has the right to live where you want. But when you come into these neighborhoods have a history like Harlem, like Bed-Stuy, Do or Die, Bedford-Stuyvesant, like Fort Greene, you, you can't come in like your uh, occupying armies just start, when you use this Brooklyn word, start like Bogarten and, and turning stuff around for years. And, and I think it was Mount Morris Park and Marcus Garvey Park. These brothers who play African drums every Sunday decades the neighbor changed that SH you know what got shut down shut down and I like to elaborate a little bit more I grew up in Fort Greene, Brooklyn very gentrified now my mother was a visionary we bought our brownstone when no one was buying them our brownstone we bought 1968 for $40,000. Now they're going for over $2 million. But growing up in my neighborhood, you know, we never had the garbage picked up regularly. The school, neighbor schools weren't that good. 
and also the cops weren't around when you need them. Now these things are there. Public school is great. Garbage picked up every day. Police are around. Why did the complexion neighborhood have to change for these social services to take place? We're all paying taxes. It's it's like a double-edged sword. So you live, if you live in a neighborhood, you're happy that this stuff is happening. You're happy there's a whole fools in your neighborhood. Because we were growing up, we would my mother would never buy meat in my neighborhood. We always had we always went to Brooklyn Heights. <laughs> we went to Brooklyn Heights to buy food. Because the food in the neighborhood was terrible. I mean, this whole thing is very, very uh, complicated. I'm not going to sit here behind this mic here in New York City on 42nd Street between 5th and 6th Avenue and say that I have the answers the same way back in 1989 while I was criticized a lot by me because I didn't provide the answer for racism at the end of Do the Right Thing. You know, I think a lot of times it is the, it can be the job of an artist to present the problems, to hold the mirror up, and hopefully by provoking the positive dialogue and not yelling and screaming, you know, we could come to some type of uh, something. I think one of the beautiful things about Do the Right Thing is the way that even the uprising as thrilling as it is, you're not afraid to show its problematics. You know what I mean? Nobody is perfectly right in the movie. There's no voice of righteous, perfect righteous justice. It's really a movie about the pain of a broken system. Yep. It's been broken. Look, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you this. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your addiction to Air Jordans <laughs> earlier on in the program. Right. If you could have one, one pair, one colorway. <laughs> the 11s, the Air, the, the Air Jordan 11s with the black patent leather and, and, and everything else is white. The 11s. I'm not going to argue with that. It's a good pick. Well, Spike Lee, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was... You know, I want to tell you, I had a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And I hope the audience uh, has some laughs, too. Spike Lee's newest film, Michael Jackson's Journey from Motown to Off the Wall, is on Showtime now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. One thing you have to get used to about high maintenance, it's a comedy about a marijuana delivery man, but there are basically no pot jokes. In fact, even saying it's about the delivery man is a stretch. Really, it's about the people buying his product. Drug dealers aren't like pizza delivery guys. They come into your house. They visit your world. And that's what High Maintenance is about. It's essentially an anthology show about Brooklynites of a certain social set, 30-somethings in what you might call a post-hipster state of life, mostly settled, but not so settled that they don't occasionally call a guy on a bike who has a fishing lure case full of weed in his messenger bag. Here's a scene from one episode. The two customers have spent their day trying to figure out how to deal with a mouse in their apartment. They finally catch it in a glue trap, and they call the dealer to come and bring them some anxiety relief. We're so stressed out. There's a mouse. Oh, we'll just set a trap, guys. That's the problem. There is a trap, and it's a glue trap, and the mouse is stuck in it, and it's screaming, and it's very clearly suffering, and we don't know what to do. 
You just kill it. No, it's inhumane. Well, it's not actually inhumane. I mean, we caught a mouse in a glue trap, and we didn't see it till a couple hours later, and then it chewed his leg off like James Franco in that rock climbing movie, and it dragged itself off and expired in the dog dish. So it's like, it might be more humane to kill it. No, this is not an apartment where things die. This is an apartment where things live. We do not torture in this apartment, and we do not kill. I mean, to be fair, we already gassed it, and it's, like, totally covered in Pam. So, that sounds like torture. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's doused in Pam, so I think maybe we should just kill it. Okay, fine. Will you do it? Yes, I will do it. Okay, but you have to do it humanely, like, peacefully, like... Put it in a pillowcase, put it in uh, an exhaust pipe. No. High Maintenance began as a web show, but it got picked up for TV by HBO last year, and it makes its television debut on September 16th. My guests are the married couple behind the show, Katya Blickfeld and Ben Sinclair. They created the show together. Sinclair stars as the dealer, who's just called The Guy. I spoke to Katya Blickfeld and Ben Sinclair last year. Katya and Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for us. having it. And thanks for being so eloquent in your description of the show. That was superlative. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Katja, I was both surprised and, upon consideration, not surprised to learn that your other day job is as a casting director mm-hmm. because this show plays like one that was conceived by a casting director in that it essentially serves as a vehicle for actors to do whatever the thing is that they do. That's true. I mean, that that's how I would characterize it as well. I think Ben would too. And yeah, that's not an accident. Ben Ben was, you know, actor number one. We started from from wanting to just create a platform for him to do what he does best, something that I didn't think he was really getting a shot at in his uh, audition opportunities, you know, he'll be the first to tell you he he always was getting called in for, you know, roles that were <laughs> that were like character. I could characterize them as angry, wild-eyed, yeah, uh, people, with- homeless, <laughs> homeless, eco terrorists. Sure, just to name a few. And yeah, I think the the casting directors Ben was meeting were sort of tapping into his edgier side, but I knew another side which I thought was very charming and charismatic and. He's very open-minded and, and laid back at his best, and I I thought it would be cool to, to feature that, to showcase that. So we started from there, in our, and in our first episode, the uh, protagonist of that one, and if you don't know what the first episode was, it's called Stevie, and it, the protagonist is this harried assistant who has a terrible boss who's, you know, torturing her by, by sending her BlackBerry messages constantly. That woman is our sister-in-law, and... We both were really big fans of her acting as well and and definitely wrote that role specifically for her and her voice. And once we did that first episode, I think it became clear that that was a good M.O., start from the actor and sort of work out from there. Although, you know, traditionally, especially in television comedy, the thing that is at the center of the entertainment is how well you know the people that you're watching, Mm -hmm. right? Like that is what makes... A sitcom. Sure. A sitcom. Yeah. And you have 
decided to dispense with that entirely. Like I thought maybe I should compare this show to Cheers, a show that's about a bar but isn't actually about drinking, right? We've used that comparison, yeah. But on the other hand, what Cheers is about is people that we know so well from coming back to them week in. There's no more sitcom-y sitcom than Cheers in that sense. And your show is about meeting new people every time. Tales from the Crypt is the one that <laughs> it, kind of has that vibe going on, too. Not in the horror sense of it. But, you know, Not what yet. was very exciting to us was this anthology style, you know. It, it really can be anything. Well, and we should say that that was born out of necessity at the beginning. We had no budget. We weren't, we weren't paying people for their time. And we had day jobs. And so we were just shooting these on a Saturday here and a Saturday there. And we, because we couldn't pay our actors or crew, we thought, well, we can't really ask too much of these people's time. Let's limit it to a day. And, you know, if we do that, maybe, maybe we'd have better luck getting a great variety of great actors if we can just keep the time commitment low. And, and so it was really a constraint that we were working with. And mm-hmm. it ended up being something that it ended up being a constraint that we liked working with. Yeah, it, as we've been doing, going through uh, making more episodes and kind of pushing the envelope a little more in terms of ambition uh, with every episode, we're realizing that constraints are very much our friends. And it does kind of ring true of this Dogma 95 essence of just kind of putting together a scene with what parts you have available to you and imitating reality. And uh, I think that we, that was, that's really the tone that shines through in our work. At what point did you decide that it was okay for you to do, you know, what you're doing in the new season, which is, you know, sometimes you'll have an 18-minute episode where the guy, uh, your character, Ben, comes in in minute 11. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we feel up and down about all that. Uh, um, you know, every episode is us coloring outside of our own lines that we've established for ourselves. Uh, and we have created a rubric for our writing, but we often are find ourselves jumping off from that rubric and at some point using that as just a, a way to get to something that we haven't done before. But that being said, we have, I think we've come, now that we've made as many episodes as we have, I guess we've made 19 in total now. Uh, we have come to find out that the most successful episodes, successful meaning we like them a lot and our audience seems to favor, you know, some episodes more than others. And they seem to be the ones where the guy is directly affecting change in his customers' lives, that he comes into their home and because of some interaction they have, they change course or they, you know, change their mind about something or some information is revealed to them that's will change things and and that is something we took away i think in these last yes in, you know in this last yeah, iteration he has to be an agent of change he can't be it's a, not a, a complete afterthought let's hear another clip from high maintenance this one's from season two of the web version of the show the guy has played matchmaker with two of his clients one is a 40-ish woman who loves bird watching the other is a similarly aged lonely-ish man who loves karaoke and helps teach a self-defense class They've had one date, which went pretty well after they smoked together, and now he's invited her to his house where he's cooking dinner. Smells really good in here. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bacon-wrapped chili pepper stuffed with cheese, homemade salsa. I think that might be a lot of spice for me. Oh, okay. 
Hey, I thought because you put so much chili pepper on your pizza the other night, you know, I thought you liked the spice. I mean, I do sometimes, but I've got a thing with my stomach and I just can't overdo it. Oh. I totally overdid it the other night. Hey, that's no problem. Is it IBS or something? No, I had stomach cancer last year. Oh. Wow. Stomach cancer, that's big. You okay? You're pretending like you don't know. I don't know. Our weed guy texted me and said that he told you. Yeah, he did. He did. Do you have a problem with that? No, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. So why are you pretending like you don't know? Well, because I don't know. I don't know, and it's, it's none of my business. I'm just, I'm just trying to be respectful. Well, would you like it to be your business? Sure. I'll finish my conversation with Katja Blickfeld and Ben Sinclair after a break. We'll talk about the challenges of charging for online content when audiences are used to getting that kind of stuff for free. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's Guy Raz here from the TED Radio Hour, and I'm really excited to tell you about another podcast I'm hosting. It's called How I Built This, and it's a show about the most amazing innovators and entrepreneurs and the stories behind the companies and movements they built. The show launches on September 12th. You can find it at npr.org slash podcasts on iTunes or on the NPR One app. Hey there, European Max Funsters. Do not miss your chance to catch some of your favorite Max Fun shows live at the London Podcast Festival, September 22nd through 26th. See amazing guests like Armando Iannucci, Josie Long, and Romare on stage with Jesse Thorne during Bullseye, bust a gut at classic panel show hijinks with International Waters, and witness some tough but fair internet justice dispensed by Judge John Hodgman himself. The Beef and Dairy Network show is already sold out, but hey, at least you can enjoy being in the proximity of the premier expert on beef animals and dairy herds, right? More guests will be announced soon, and tickets are going fast. Go to MaximumFun.org for tickets right now so you don't live a life steeped in regret. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guests are Katja Blickfeld and Ben Sinclair. Their HBO series, High Maintenance, is an anthology of encounters between a New York City pot dealer and his clients. How is it different, Katya, when you are casting in the traditional manner, which is to say, um, you know, you, for example, you cast on 30 Rock. Like if there's a guest shot on 30 Rock and, you know, you're looking for someone to be this particular thing uh, versus what is almost the flip of it which is you looking at a person and thinking, what could I make of this person? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you said it right there. That is that is the difference. It's just working sort of backwards. Although, you know, there were plenty of plenty of times on 30 Rock where I don't feel like I was really casting at all, you know, because they would write, they would write for specific individuals over there as well, you know. For as many roles as we got to cast in the casting department, there were just as many that were, you know, specifically written for. I mean, even Alec Baldwin's role, you know, when we did the pilot, 
we weren't sure if we were going to get him. He wasn't really considering television at the time. And uh, but I, I do, you know, I remember Tina gave the note a couple of times like, have you seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin in that? Think that, <laughs> you know, so she wanted him and it was cool that it worked out. So that's often how it went. Um, so, yeah, it's totally different. And it's really it's a pleasure for us. It makes our job so much easier. <laughs> I will say a cool result or really a useful result of me being over there at 30 Rock was really just the exposure to all of those really talented actors because there were so many little bit parts to cast on that show week after week and a perfect example of how we benefited from from that process was the the episode Olivia with the assholes as they're affectionately called those are both people I knew and and we were friendly with but I had also cast them on 30 Rock different episodes um tiny roles but for some reason, like, I just wanted to put those people together. And I talked about it for, like, a year. Mm-hmm. And then it was just so cool. They met each other on set that day and were, like, instant best friends. It was a one-day shoot. Yeah. yeah it, was <laughs> a one- it, it just went so well. And, they're you know, now they're really – they are actually really close, those two. But that, that – I mean, it was just so cool that it could work out that way. Yeah, a lot of luck here with us just putting our faith in things that just worked out. Yeah. What's the scariest part of doing the show? I would say uh, making sure our relationship comes first. That's the number one scary thing. Oftentimes, you know, uh, we'll find ourselves being like, oh, my God, I can never leave work because it's everywhere. And it's in our bedroom and it's in our shower and it's (laughs) in, you know, it's everywhere. On our family yeah, on our we, we went home for Thanksgiving last year and then we shot that Matilda episode in Arizona. And that was like a... It was fun and it was a great experience and, you know, cool to work with our family members. But also it came at the expense of like probably some quality time that could have been had in another way. Yeah. But then, you know, you would just... Re- I would regress to how I was in high school. And it's like, I'm not fine. I'm, I'm fine that we worked at home. But I'm. But the point is that it's just, it's hard to uh, know when to be like, stop looking at your phone you know, can we not talk about this right now? I just we we're, this is supposed to be a, a time to not do this, and the propensity yeah, is to always bring it back to work, and because it's exciting, and because it's uh, all encompassing now. The reason that people, a lot of the people that we're meeting, want to talk to us is because of this show. So we have to give it its due, but we also have to not put all of our eggs in that basket and diversify our abilities and our reasons to be worth knowing. Um, when do the two of you use marijuana? What time of the day? Or when at or what? In what circumstances? Well, sure, you can tell what time oh, of the day, too, but... So many circumstances. Primarily, I think we use it... I'm a high-anxiety person. I have a lot of anxiety. I... I use it to self-medicate. So that's f- frequent. <laughs> yeah, if I feel stressed about something, I notice a habit forming where I will reach for a device or a joint or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a stress. It's like a, it's an out. I rec- we, and we both recognize like the, the complicated issues surrounding that. But we also use that as you know, a recreational celebratory thing, the way that some people 
drink, a few glasses of wine to loosen up. And we celebrate the sunrise in the mornings. <laughs> celebrate we celebrate the sunsets. We celebrate our ability to make it through the make get to two p.m. Traffic. Yeah. <laughs> have you have you had to engage uh, marijuana's role in your life more because you are making a show that is about? Uh, a pot delivery guy? <laughs> well, I think I've we've always been engaging with our and feeling kind of guilty about our usage and all that for before for and after, yeah. you know. Nothing's really changed. I will say that the honesty of being able to be like, this is happening, guys, has really extended and opened so many doors for us. In other ways. In other ways. Yeah. Uh, my relationship with my parents has really blossomed because I wasn't keeping some weird secret from them. Yeah, mine became more honest as well, my relationship with my parents. And Including about other things besides yeah. just yes. Yes. Um, and it has really opened a lot of communication doorways because there is not this uh, underlying thing of I'm pretending to be something that I'm actually not. Like I'm a stoner. Like it's 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 happening. And <laughs> and and since I've been able to say that with without having to feel ashamed about it, my life has really come together in in more ways than it has uh, been better by lying about my uh what's going on with me and it helps so much in writing it does, uh, yeah it unblocks I, I get in my own way because of said anxiety and i think that it's all it's a tool for all kinds of things good and evil i mean like we said there at times it's a tool for escape when we shouldn't escape yeah we don't do we need this every moment life's pretty good without it yeah yeah, but the weed guy is here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it's right there. And it's like, yeah. I don't know. The worst part about it is the the throat, lung stuff that... Yeah, we've been saying a lot lately when people ask us about it that we're not advocating pot smoking, actually. We're not even advocating pot usage. We're just trying to normalize it. But while we're on the subject, don't smoke it. It's so bad for you. IV, you recommend? Sure, Yeah, yeah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Katja Blickfeld and Ben Sinclair. They're the creators of the series High Maintenance, which runs Fridays on HBO starting this week. You've embarked on this, uh, into this new world of media. Um, you, your new episodes of your show are essentially for sale on Vimeo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, it's a, some kind of perpetual rental, I think. Yes. But, yeah. Um, uh, were you scared to make that transition? Absolutely. Yeah. We've seen our, you know, those episodes have far fewer views than the others. They Being do. behind a paywall is prohibitive, it turns out. Yeah. No, we were very much going into this like this is an experiment and because the terms. we still are. And we are. And because the terms of our deal is so flexible that we are not too scared, like we're, we've been backed ourselves into a corner that we will not be able to modify at some point. But, uh, yeah, we thought it wasn't too much to ask of people just to pay for this like they would pay for anything else. And there has been a more overwhelming, uh, on, at least on our on-demand page, the comments are overwhelmingly like, yeah. That's like happy to support you guys. Happy to support you guys. So that has been a cool way to show. But I do think that, I mean, me as a viewer, I wouldn't want to pay for. No, no one likes that. to pay. I wouldn't want to do it. Even and it's and we talk about this a lot too. There's you know there's a psychology behind it because people don't complain about paying for Netflix. People people don't complain about paying to see a movie. 
when they go to the theater. People don't complain about having to buy a concert ticket or a theater ticket or many other artistic experiences that feel kind of ephemeral and, you know, or, or not. Or, you know, it's a filmed thing yeah. where there's a lot of time that and labor that went into the production and people just understand that you pay for the experience of, of getting to watch that thing. Mm-hmm. So it's puzzling to us at times that there's this um, resistance from... Some people to to pay for this work. Well, some people get downright angry. Yeah, some people get downright angry. That is true. But uh, a couple of times we have like we were like, what are we going to do with this show uh, in terms of matters pertaining to money? We're like, well, what would the guy do? <laughs> you know, and I I I think a, a, a guy would probably give out a couple of free product and then be like, okay, if you want more, it costs money. And yeah, like what Ben just said, some people are like, oh, yeah, just like a just like a drug dealer, get us hooked and then charge us. And, and then we're like, yeah, yeah, just like a drug dealer. <laughs> no, but but also like, yeah, guys, how do you think these happened? They didn't just materialize out of thin air. Like human beings are behind this, working, spending yeah. hours and hours of their time. It just at it's a just, certain point, we like exhausted our goodwill with people. We felt we didn't want to ask our friends to come work for free anymore. And I don't mm-hmm. like how can you fault us for that? And it's just also the expectation set up by the internet that shorter videos on the internet should be free and if it's not a tv show that was not made by a company a mega mega company then i should get that for free if it's just yeah, some yeah if it's not an hbo thing. show then yeah i don't want to pay for it but we're straddling a weird line because or know, we're trying to yeah 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 are right, we have a poster now that's going around for our marketing this is the greatest show not on tv and that feels like what we are is not on tv not a web series anymore. It just feels like we're not on TV show. Has the show changed your lives outside of making the show in the ways that you hoped or expected it might when you started creating it? Yes. Way more than beyond what we could have ever imagined. Yeah. yeah. It has been made a, it the uh, the success of it all for us is that uh, people that we look up to are being like, I like that. And then yeah, let's talk. Let's talk. And that is where we have found it to be a successful endeavor because that's all we ever wanted to do was get a seat at the table. Yeah. And that's where we are, it seems. And also, it has this other cool effect that we hadn't counted on, which is I think because of the personal nature of the show and how we write it um, – and people, I think the real fans know how much how personal it is. There is sort of this cool thing that happens where you know when people come up to talk to us, and a lot of times it seems like they're fellow creators or creatives, and there's just like this um, immediate recognition that is there for people where they're like, oh, I, like you get me and I get you, and we're all trying to do the same thing here, and they feel free to talk really candidly with us about. All kinds of things. I mean, I'll be honest, a lot of the, those conversations, it seems like, are people being like, oh, I got to tell you about this one time I got really stoned. And like they want to like <laughs> – it's just funny. Like there's this whole brand of person that like just starts in on their drug stories and that's that's fine. But even better than that is when people just are taking their cues of, to be honest and, and forthright because of the, the, the personal nature of what we do. And that's been cool because I think we have some interactions with people that feel really like authentic and – and restore our faith in humanity because we're pretty cynical people. Uh, and that has been a very cool result, I think. Well, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Yeah, you it was too. nice to talk to you, too. 
Katya Blickfeld, Ben Sinclair are the co-creators of High Maintenance, which makes its HBO debut this week. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. The word satire actually has a meaning. Usually, people use it to mean humor that fancy people are allowed to enjoy. But satire is an actual term of art. Its most broad meaning is to use humor to expose stupidity and vice. The more specific meaning, though, is to assume the form of something and twist it just enough to display its grotesquerie. It's often funny, but... Sometimes it can be hard to laugh, especially when the indictment is pointed towards us. My favorite satire of the past decade or so is a very strange television show that ran late at night on MTV2. It was called Wonder Showsen. It looked like a kid's show, but it wasn't. I mean, it really, really wasn't. Wonder Showsen started with this horrifying sound and an on-screen graphic that read, Wonder Showsen contains offensive, despicable content that is too controversial and too awesome for actual children. The stark, ugly, profound truths this program exposes may be soul-crushing to the weak of spirit. If you allow a child to watch this show, then you are a bad parent or guardian. And all of that was 100% true. Wonder Showsen had puppets and children and lots of upsetting truths. This, for example, is elementary schoolers answering the question, where do babies come from? Desire for welfare. I seen a picture where it came from, but I don't want to say where it came from. Carelessness. Ignored prayers. I don't want to say, but I got a spelling instead. B-U-T. If tiny children and colorful puppets speaking hard truths isn't funny to you, you will not like Wonder Showsen. Kids TV is supposed to teach young people to negotiate the world, but... What about the truths that the world contains that we don't even want to acknowledge for ourselves? Like, remember when Mr. Rogers went on a tour of a crayon factory? Wonder shows and visited a hot dog factory. First, they unload the pig. I named that one Mortimer. Those pigs are going through hell. And my taste buds are going to heaven. That's the meat they use to make hot dogs. That's the dark nature of capitalism. It turns out that it's kind of hard to deflect painful truths when they're coming at you from the mouths of adorable seven-year-olds. Like the trench coat-clad child reporter that Wonder Shows and sent to Wall Street. Who did you exploit today? Who did I exploit? Hmm. I don't think I did yet. But are you? Uh, yeah, probably sometime today. Or when kid reporter Trevor went to the racetrack and talk to a sweet old man. I can do an impression of you. Gamble. You can do an impression of me? Yeah. Oh, I bet you can't. 
Don't forget, I'm an older man than you. I can do it. Let me see what you're going to do. Gamble, 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 die. It kind of turns your stomach. But that's the point. The kids aren't the target here. It's not even really about the people they're talking to. It's about us. That's why it's so scary. When you have power, and you have a lot more than you think, trust me, it's easy to ignore the inconvenient truth that surrounds you. If you work at the dump, you stop smelling the garbage after a while. Great satire, like Wonder shows in, picks it up with a shovel and shoves it in our faces. Every morning when I wake up, I wash my hands. Then I have some food, and then I wash my hands. Then I take a shower, wash my hands, and then wash my hands. And then Mommy tells me my hands are clean. And then I wash and wash and wash my hands. Then I touch a football, and I wash and wash and wash and wash. And I watch my sister washing her hands, and I get an idea to wash my hands. And I wash and wash and wash, but I never get clean. The shame never seems to scrub off. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Kara Hart. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. This week, guest hosted by my friend Winter Mitchell. Hey, Winter, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this is digital strategist Winter Mitchell filling in for Guy Branham. This week, we took a look at some upcoming fall TV shows, and uh, we also cover what our obsessions were about fall TV growing up. That's what we have on Pop Rocket. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 